Father in heaven, how wonderful it is, um, just the comfort that we can take and knowing that Jesus Christ is for us. And um, thank you, God, that mercy abounds in him. Uh, the Father, anything that we're wrestling with, even no matter if it's a, just a dark situation, we can bring it all to your feet, knowing that you've taken care of everything, that we uh, can, can seek your face, Lord, and know that we're guaranteed mercy and grace. Um, Father, please bless our time looking at this passage. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're still in our little uh, segue that we've taken in looking at the concept of the outer darkness. And we're looking at, in particular, the parable of Matthew twenty-two fourteen. Now, one thing I want to remind us of is we are only in the observation stage. We are not in the interpretation stage. And I think that's important for us to remember. Uh, we, we so often... What's that? Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Uh, you should have a little sheet I gave out. If I need to print more sheets, let me know. I can get more for next week. But we were doing all kinds of pen marks and marking up of this sheet here. Um, yeah, Matthew 22. We, we have a tendency sometimes to want to observe very little and try to interpret a lot. We want to jump to... What does it mean? And that's one of the most dangerous things we can do because if we haven't spent adequate time with the text, we will find that we will interpret amiss. It happens a lot. So um, I want to back up real quick. Did I give you guys homework? No. Okay. No. Uh, uh, no? Just making sure. That's good, good church answer. That's good. So let's... Uh, Let's start at the beginning. Does somebody want to read verses 1 through 14 for us of Matthew 22? Jesus spoke to them in parables. Well, wait, real quick. Let me ask this question. Are you, what translation are you using? I'm using probably NSAB. I'll just read it right off the sheet. Okay, just want to make sure. Great. Okay. Just know what we're doing. Okay. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. (coughs) Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went into the city and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes and said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, Find him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing. Okay. Now, I want to remind you real quick before we step into this. What was the situation with the centurion 
in Matthew 8. And, and remember Jesus turning around and talking to the Jews? <coughs> and there was something that was the linchpin. Great faith. Great faith. I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. And then he tells us something about the future. There will be many that will come from the east and west, and they will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But as for you sons of the kingdom, you will be cast into the lake of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or cast into the outer darkness, forgive me, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, Which are two different places. Two different places. So we want to we want to be, I believe they're two different places. That's what we're trying to determine. What do we believe about the outer darkness from what the Bible tells us? So what I want you to, to remember is that in that account, there was something that turned a corner that really unveiled a lot of things for us. And it was the idea that the centurion had great faith. There's something in this parable that is going to turn a corner for us that we need to pay attention to. Um, what is a parable? Do we remember? We talked about this. To come alongside. Okay. The idea is to come alongside. It's a story that Jesus is going to tell, to, to tell, to tell, <laughs> that is going to come alongside an important truth that he wants the people in his hearing to know. Okay? So now real quick, in verse 1, who's them? Do we know that? If we don't have our Bibles open, we might need to flip open to Matthew 21. And we not, might need to find out who the audience is. We know that Jesus is the speaker. Matthew is the author. But who is them in Matthew 21? Okay, is it the Pharisees? Speaking about them when they sought to seize the audience. Okay. Considered him a prophet. Forty-five. The parables and priests. They were talking about them. Okay. Okay. So let's see here. Okay. So twenty-three. Chief priest and the elders. Forty-five. 2145, the chief priests and the Pharisees. Okay? Now, the reason why we know who them is is because them dictates a lot of how we understand this parable. Now, one of the questions we have to consider for, and we just have to because it's there, is was there anybody else around? Was it exclusively one group? So, they feared the people, so there were people there. Okay, so notice that they feared the people, and that might have had some bearing in it because they considered him to be a prophet. So either if they seized him, their actions were going to become known eventually, or if they seized him, that action was going to become known immediately, depending on if they were if people were there or not there. Okay? What were we saying? Go ahead. I was going to say, or it could turn into a mob if there's a lot of people there. It could turn into a mob situation. So now... Yeah, so now Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, now remember, what is the subject matter? The kingdom of heaven. Notice, it may be compared to, so it's going to be like this, and it's important that you see compared to. It's going to be like this. Not that it is this, it's going to be like this. So there's, a, there's something about the kingdom of heaven. Now, are we going to sit here and say, well, the kingdom of heaven is a king? That's what it is. We're not saying that. Well, the kingdom of heaven is like a feast. Well, we're not saying that. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven is going to be like this. This situation somehow is going to touch 
this idea of the kingdom of the heavens. And here's what he says here. May be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now immediately we, we are dying to interpret this, are we not? The king is God, the son is Jesus, and the wedding feast is the wedding supper of the lamb. I know this. <laughs> you know, we, we, but, but see how easy it is? See how easy it is to trickle right into interpretation and not, you know, pull the horse in a little bit and say, wait a second, let's not go there. It says here in verse 3, and he sent out his slaves, mark the word slaves, very important. He sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited. Notice those were invitees number one, or the invited number one, uh, to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened livestock, and all are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Now stop. As far as historical background information from the subject under consideration, what would it be good for us to know about in order to better understand what Jesus is talking about? The customs around a wedding. What are the customs in a Jewish first century setting surrounding a wedding feast? We know a little bit of it from John 2, the wedding feast at Cana, where Jesus turns the water into wine, right? It's a marathon. It's a marathon is essentially what it is. We've learned some of that historically. But here's a question. What resources would we go to to help us understand that? Google. Google. There it is. There it is. The almighty scholar of Dr. Google. Uh, anything on the internet. But we, so usually the internet's going to have a myriad of things on there, right? 23 opinions and 29 of them are wrong. That's usually how it goes. Uh, but we would want to find some things, some good places to look. Commentaries are good for factual information. They don't do any good as far as helping you with subjective information because they're trying to sway you to their opinion. They're trying to tell you that they have authority over the interpretation. Not meaning so, it's just where they've been brought to and their understanding of the message. So some things that would help are like Bible handbooks, Bible dictionaries. Unger's Bible dictionary is a great Bible dictionary. You look in there and you just look up wedding. And you would want to know what surrounds a Jewish wedding. And if you tried to look up Jewish first wedding, it would probably say, See also weddings, comma, Jewish, right? So it's going to send you there, and you're going to learn all this information about the things that transpired in a wedding feast. So when we understand about invited people, when we understand about food already being prepared, when we understand what it is for someone to say, yeah, I know I've been invited, uh, but I think I'm going to tell this king to kiss off because I'm not going to come to his feast, Okay. Uh, remember what we talked about it's very insulting in the situation so we would need to know some historical things about wedding feasts here is your homework do some research this week on some things about what a historical first century jewish wedding feast would be like if you want something that's going to be more at your fingertips download esword Go to esword.net or something. In fact, don't do that. You probably end up on a porn site or something like that because pornography people are trying to manipulate Christian yeah. things and, and tack them to porn sites. Um, instead, Google esword, free download. E-sword, free download. Download the program on your laptop or desktop. Pull it up. It'll give you very basic tools, and then you can go to the Downloads tab, and you can download tons of resources. Simply go to Matthew 22, type it in the box there, and you can start looking through that way. Mary, 
is our church librarian. She could immediately, off the top of her head, take you to a section and pull a dozen resources that she could put in your hand today, right after this class, and you could check out. So much well, Am I lying? No. All kinds of stuff. And here's what you guys have to remember: we have one of the best. We have the best church library I've ever seen in my life. The only library that gets any better than this is a seminary library. I'm serious. It is an incredible amount of wonderful tools that we have in there just waiting for us to understand more about the Bible that's in front of our eyes. So please take advantage of that. Go in there and and check a book out, a Bible dictionary, a Bible handbook, uh, a commentary on Matthew that's going to deal with the 22nd chapter that's really going to give you nuts and bolts information that you'd want to know about this and see what's happening. Uh, Remember, the whole reason why we're doing this is because we're talking about what is it to study a text or a subject and get the meaning out of it. What did you say to look up? The histor- what, what a historical first century Jewish wedding is like. In the first century, Jesus' time, how would the Jews celebrate a wedding? It's very different from how we do it now. It is emphasize the, the groom more than the bride, the Jewish culture. That's something interesting to look up. They're emphasizing the groom more than the bride. Probably a week long. Anybody, it's a week long. That's a good time, which is interesting, seven days. Anybody want to wonder why they emphasize the groom more than the bride? Male dominant society. Yeah, because they're all chauvinist and pigs. That's why. <laughs> or could the Jewish wedding feast be a picture of something greater? Celebration of the Notice it's the union of, of the body of Christ, actually, and the Messiah. And that's the reason why the Messiah is emphasized more. The, the, the groom there is because it's a picture of the Messiah, not because the groom's special. I promise you, he's not. But it's the fact that the bridegroom. Jesus is the groom, the church is the groom. Exactly. Right, so. I is mean, it, there's a lot there about how that would look. Go ahead. Is there any significance that they have already been invited? Yes. And we have to determine what that is. Yeah. And that's, the, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you the question is, who's them in verse 1? Because if he's speaking to a particular audience, we need to ask ourselves the question. He's obviously trying to communicate that, to them something about this. You see what I'm saying? And yeah, he's being all ambiguous. And te- here's Jesus telling the story again, right? That kind of thing. What in the world is he talking about kind of stuff? But we have to ask the question. If he's meant for the audience to understand something, is there a place that the audience fits in his story? Is there something that they need to theologically understand about the illustration that he's unfolding for them? I think that's important to understand. So we have to ask ourselves the question, where do the scribes and Pharisees fit in this story, if at all? What are they communicating? Now, be careful, because then you start interpreting and not observing. You see what I'm saying? But these are good things we want to consider in the context. So, verse 5, But they paid no attention. They went their way, one to his farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Okay? Now we're going to pick up where we left off at last time. Verse 7. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and set their city on fire. Now stop for a second. What does this tell you about the king? Okay. You better RSVP. Yeah. He was merciful in sending out a delegation to draw in the people invited, was he not? In fact, he didn't just do it once, he did it twice. He valued his slaves. He valued his slaves. He will punish. 
Okay? He has the power to punish. And this ain't just any like, come here, I'm going to spank your butt. <laughs> Notice, it's not that. Look what it says. The king was enraged. So their response to his graciousness fueled wrath. I think that's important for us to think about. It says here, and he sent his armies. Notice his slaves didn't go out this time. He sent armies. The slaves were there to herald people to respond to the invitation. The armies are there to say you have no response left. If anything, this is a consequence of your failure to respond. So, what's that? And the murder of the slaves. Notice that. (laughs) And the murder of the slaves. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers. What are they guilty of? Murdering slaves. Isn't that interesting? Notice it's not just about them refusing the invitation. Yeah. What were remember, what were the slaves telling them that was bad? Slaves didn't come bearing bad news. Come to a party. They came bearing good good news. But here's the thing. Isn't it odd? And we talked about this a little bit last time, but let's refresh it. Isn't it odd that people would get so riled up about good news that's going to take them away from their business? You talk about workaholics. Isn't that kind of what the uh, bruised season? The good news would take away from their power base. It would, wouldn't it? Is this where they're at? What was that again? Let's not interpret. She said, in this kind of situation with the Pharisees, this good news is going to take away from their power. We could relate it that way. Is that where they fit? Do they fit there? I don't know. So, let's keep going here. Verse 8. Then... He said to his slaves, now stop for a second. Would everybody agree that verses 2 through 6 are like a preliminary deal? Verse 7 is a response to the failures of the people in 2 through 6. And now verse 8 starting something fresh. Would you agree? Notice it's not. Okay, so now we're done with the subject of the kingdom of God. Let's move on to something else. Notice it's not that. We're still in the same realm of the subject. The parable is about the kingdom. But as far as the components are what will make up the kingdom, we're we're learning something different, something new. If anything, the word then is the tell. Everybody say that? Or see that? Then, he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready. Now stop. Was it ready before? Okay. Notice the feast was ready before. Yes, they were ready to celebrate. The wedding is ready. But those who were invited. Now, for those who were invited, I'm going to draw a little arrow above the, the, the word invited, and I'm going to put V period 2 through 6. That's the guys, the girls, the people that were in verses 2 through 6. They were not what? Okay, stop. That's a huge designation. Why were they not worthy? Because of their behavior, lack of response. Okay. Not, but their rejection. Okay. What did what did what did the people in uh, two through six value? Work themselves. Work themselves, their own livelihood. Uh, One went on their way; they paid no attention. One to his farm, one to his business. Then the rest went to kill people. So notice they got a value system that's completely corrupt. Yes. So they were not worthy. Those who were invited were not worthy. 
This is a pronouncement of why they're not there. Now, let's ask the skeptics question, okay? The question, if we sit here and we pondered long enough, this question would come to our mind. If God knows everything, and if he knows that those people that were invited were not worthy, why'd he bother to invite them? Loves them anyway. Isn't that what everybody does with the whole creation thing? Well, if God created all people and he knew that people were going to sin, why'd he bother to create them? Because he what, Jamie? Because he loves them. Because he loves them. And he wants them. He wants them there. Let me ask you a question. Did everybody fail to respond? No. No, probably not. Majority? Absolutely. But do you think there were a couple people who got through the cracks and said, man, we need to pay attention to this. In fact, if we had to pay any attention and if we were to interpret and say, wait a second, this sounds a lot like what went on in the first 39 books of the Bible. Right? Yep, there's a remnant of people. We know that Noah responded, yes. Mm -hmm. We know that Enoch definitely responded. Good grief, he didn't even suffer death. Yet Enoch was a preacher of righteousness. Anybody ever seen that in Jude? About the type of man Enoch was? Let's look at that real quick. I want to just show it to you real quick. But to think about what we're dealing with, with, with possibility of who the slaves are that were sent out to call people. You know, despite what you're doing, you're invited, which I think is interesting. Let's see here. Enoch, or sorry, uh, Jude, look at verse 14, right next to Revelation. And it's interesting, we're thankful that Jude knows his Old Testament history because he gets the chronology correct, so that's good. The seventh from Adam. Mm -hmm. Seventh from Adam. Look what it says. It was also about these men, corrupt men. That Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, so he's speaking forward truth. Notice he's not predicting the end of the world. That's important for us to see the other way that the word prophecy or prophesying is used. Prophesied saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they've done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is not in how to win friends and influence people. Everybody see the word ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. Enoch was a man who condemned the culture of his generation according to a standard of righteousness that he understood by God. And what are we told about Enoch? He walked with God and was no more, for God took him. Enoch loved God so much and was so faithful to God that he didn't even see death. I don't even know what's going on there. But we, we've heard that for years, but good grief, it doesn't cease to boggle the mind as far as I'm concerned. So notice. Because you know he was a sinner. He was a sinner. But he's also a preacher of righteousness. And his preacher of righteousness was pointing out the ungodliness and how God will execute judgment. I think that's what it's... Notice he didn't ask anybody to invite Jesus in their heart or to try Jesus for a little while to see if they like him. He didn't do any of that stuff. Very interesting to see that. So anyway, that's important to point out to you. Move back to our, our study. I don't mean to get us too far off track. But the idea is those people that were already invited previously were not worthy. They were not worthy in the situation. Now, verse 8 begins a new mission, a new way that the king is doing something. And look what it says. Then he said to, uh, sorry, verse 9, go therefore, that's what I meant. Verse 9 is a new mission. Go therefore into the main highways, and as many as you find there. Now, main highways is a big deal, because obviously this is something different. 
And as many as you find, and you can take there out, I'll circle there and I'll put a little slash through it so I can still read it, but it's italicized. It's not in the original. As many as you find, invite to the wedding feast. You know who this is? Us. Nope. No. Don't interpret. <laughs> Just observe. This is invitation number three. Invitation number three to group number two. Does everybody see that? So this is a third invite to a second group. Wait, not. It's invitation one to group number two. It's invitation. Yes, overall in the parable, it's invitation number three. Okay. So let me show you real quick. Yes. Group number one are those who had already been invited. Verse three. Okay. That's first invite. Yeah. Group number one who were invited a second time because they were unwilling to come. Notice their personal responsibility and failure. They were unwilling to come. Verse four. Again, he sent out slaves saying, tell those who have been invited. Number Invitation number two to the same group. Everybody see that? Now in verse 9, we have invitation number 3 sent out to group number 2. And what's interesting is the main highways, as many as you find. Anybody know what that means, people-wise? Just anybody. Just anybody. There's no discrimination. All the Samaritans. There is no, even, even the Samaritans and stuff. Thank you for that wincing look you give, that grimace of disgust for those half-breed people. How racist, how racist we stand as Gentiles at the table. So does this identify the first, the people, the them? Well, I don't know, because, because here's what's interesting. Number one, the main highway, that's a specific thing, okay? But what, what is interesting is, is the realm, as many as you find, mm -hmm. which could include new people that were never invited before, could include old people that have been invited. So was the first group Jews then? We're not interpreting. Don't interpret. Don't interpret. I'm just asking. But here's the thing. If, if we've read the Bible for any length of time, the Holy Spirit just brings things to your mind going, aha, aha, wait a second. Think about this. Why? Because the Holy Spirit wants to teach us what this means. He doesn't want us to remain in the fog about these things. He wants us to understand it. Now, again, the question we still want to ask, answer at some point where do the Pharisees and scribes fill into this whole thing? Where are they at? But what is it? What is Jesus trying to communicate about the nature of the kingdom of the heaven? Okay? Open to everybody. Well, it's open to everybody. That seems to where it's going now. The wedding feast has an open admission process now. Okay? There's, there's no discrimination any longer starting with verse 9. So something had to happen at a moment in history where there was a shift of events, if that's what he's talking about. Verse 9, go therefore to the main highways, as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out, look at this, into the streets, which if you underline into the streets, and you can almost draw an arrow between main highways and into the streets. Didn't matter where they were. Now these literal streets? Not necessarily. But everybody see how the story is unfolding. It's the idea of going about and heralding amongst people about a finished wedding feast, a wedding celebration that's ready to take place. And oh, by the way, you may not have a personal acquaintance with the groom or the king, but we're letting you know you can come. <clears throat> kind of idea. Into the streets. And they gathered together all they found. Both 
Now notice, who is the all here? In this situation, all doesn't mean everybody. Why is that? Because all is contingent upon the people that respond. Who are the people that responded? Two good words. Evil and good. Oh my gosh. You mean evil people are going to be in the wedding feast? You're going to be there, right? I'm going to be there, right? So yeah, evil people are going to be there. Good people are going to be there. See, there's there's so much going on here just to just make you stop and think about, wow, grace is a lot more beyond what I'm giving credence to. It really stretches a far way. All they found, both good, evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled yeah. with dinner guests. Wow. These were people on the main highways, anybody that they found, in the streets, they were all gathered together, whether they were evil or they were good, and they were made guests. It's a free lunch. Oh, man. It's like Grace, free. Oh, it's fantastic. And it's not just a free lunch, it's a party. Now, again, we need to know about this wedding feast, this Jewish wedding feast, because this was a prolonged party. There was a lot that went into this. There's a lot that goes into this. There's a lot of quality makeup that has a lot of symbolism. It holds a lot of weight. This moment was to matter. You know, now we, oh, they're getting married. How precious is this? This is so great. You show up, ceremony now, any weddings I've done lately, I've never had anybody say, we want this ceremony to last an hour. Okay? <laughs> that never happened. You guys freak out when I preach that long, okay? They're like, listen, 20 minutes, we're up, we're down, I do, exchange your rings, let's get out of there. We're ready to dance and eat. That's how everybody is, right? And all the guests that come are like, we're expecting to be fed, right? And it's this kind of like, yay, serving and celebrating. We'll get you, you know, the foot warmer thing or whatever. Yay, that's great. And that's the extent of what we do. Jewish wedding, completely different. Because there's a lot more bound up in what it's proclaiming. Not just us celebrating the moment. It has a lot more significance at that time. So we need to know this because we could run into massive dangers just reading a 21st century American wedding feast into this situation. That's, that's called eisegesis. That's reading a meaning into the text. So watch what happens here. Verse 11. And notice that 11 there is what? It's, it's, well, it's got a, it's, uh, no, no, it's not that. It's bold-faced. So in, in verse 11, you know that in the manuscripts that they translated into the English from, this was a new paragraph that they were dealing with in the transcription, Okay. So not, watch what happens. This is why I like the new, new American Standard so much better. Why I wasn't using it before I came here, I'm a fool. I don't know. But moving on. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, okay? So the one who's hosting the party walks in and he's looking around. You ever hosted a party before and wanted to come in and see if everybody was having a good time and how everything was going? Okay, here it is. He saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. Now stop. Is he at a wedding? He is. What's the issue? He just came in off the streets. He's not dressed. But he was just invited. Notice, this is interesting. He came in off the streets. Let's cut the guy some slack. (laughs) They just invited him all, you know, in off the 5th and Main. He just walked in. Right. uh, You expect him to have a chance to go to Rinitux and come in with something? In the weddings of that time, the wedding... Clothes were provided. Were provided. Oh! Wow. Oh! Mm. 
you just damaged homework number two for the week. <laughs> but Dan, that's exactly right. Here's the amazing thing about why the king is going to take such a vested interest in how the guests are doing. Not only because he's supplying everything for their enjoyment and celebration, but it goes much more beyond that. The clothes that someone wore in the wedding feast were clothes that the host provided for the guests. It was not they went home, put on clothes, they found rent-a-tux and made sure they had their measurements up and all that. When they showed up, they were giving a garment to put on as part of the celebration. The king was providing all the attire. Now, does everybody see where all of a sudden in our minds a lot of things start clicking a little bit? Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. Having read this in our 21st century mindset, we would have not known that if we don't know anything about the background. A first century Jewish person would have known this immediately. And see, that's the interesting thing. We have to interpret as first century Jewish people looking at this situation when it's dealing especially with things about the kingdom. That's the world in which Jesus ministered in. So we've got to understand it that way. We have to understand it. The text means, here it is, hermeneutics people. The text means what the original author meant for it to mean at the time that he wrote it, period. Text only has one meaning. It's what the original author meant at the time of writing. So notice that the wedding clothes were provided. Verse 12, and he said to him, you jerk. (laughs) Notice that's not what he says, does he? Friend. 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 And I don't and, and some people have said, man, he came in full of sarcasm. <laughs> no. Is that how the king acts? No. no. Isn't it amazing that the king would come alongside hey, somebody man. who's in the wrong and say, Friend? Did Jesus address uh, Judas that way? Friend, do what you Jesus did address Judas as a friend. Yeah. Think about this real quick. This is full of dignity and compassion. It's not some crass treatment, okay? Friend. How did you come in here without wedding clothes? Now, now look what it says. And the man was speechless. Notice, the, notice his question. Here's the question. I'm going to write Q. Notice friend. And I'm going to write next to it maybe treatment. And now let me ask you a question before you see the speechlessness of the man and pay attention to that. Why is this a good question? Because everything's been provided for him. He stands out. Yeah. He didn't get the same thing that the others. Isn't that interesting? With everything that's been provided for you freely, how is it that you're not dressed the right way? Everybody else in here was dressed the right way because they simply put on what I gave them. But you have opted not to. Now notice it's not. He doesn't come in with a, with a, a baseball bat. Remember this. He's not there to beat people. That's not at all. But he does recognize when something's wrong and he has no problem stating it. That's what's interesting. The man was speechless. What answer could he give? There's not one. If somebody came up to you and asked, what would you say? Carol, we supplied, we supplied you an a, a, a overcoat to wear for this event. You know, how come you're not dressed for it? The dog ate it. The dog ate it. He chose not to. He chose not to. Exactly. It was a choice that even though it was freely given to him, he rejected it. He rejected it. He didn't put it, and he didn't have any response for his action. Yes. Now, here's the clincher of this. Where are they at when they're having this conversation? They're in the feast. 
<clears throat> Which means he's in. He got in. He just not, chose not to appropriate what was freely given to him. And so now they need to have a conversation. Notice he wasn't barred access. Notice that Bruto at the door didn't keep him out, you know, or whoever it was. There, there wasn't a bouncer ready to throw him. He's in. They have a conversation, and he was speechless. I don't have an answer, O king. You gave me the garment. I'm just an idiot. <laughs> That's probably the answer I would have given, right? But notice, verse 13. Then the king said to his servants, Now, I warn you on this, because I, I've, I, I think I understand this correctly. If you have a translation that is considered a dynamic equivalence, which would be an NIV, an NLT, um, something other than King James, New King James, uh, a New American Standard, uh, English Standard Version, those translations. Something that's more thought for thought than word for word. You may find that the word slaves in verses 3, 4, 6, 8, and 10, that the word translated in 13 is slaves also. Now, I don't know if that's a fact in your Bible, but that is a common mistake that could happen in that type of situations. They are purposefully... Two different Greek words. Now, if you have your handy-dandy app with you. What verse? Uh, it is in uh, chapter, um, let's see, well, it's in 22, verse 13. The word servants is brought up there. So I'm going to pull up Matthew 22, and I'm going to pull up verse 13. Then the king said to his servants, and if I put my finger there, this is the Greek word diakonos. And it's the idea of a servant or an attendant. However, if you go up to the word slaves in verse 10 and you check it out, it's the word doulos. And a doulos is a, one who is in bondage to another as a slave. And oftentimes a doulos was someone, it's, it's probably more popularly translated as bond servant. It's someone who had the opportunity to go free, but desires to serve the master out of the willingness of his heart because of how much he loves the master. So in 3, 4, 6, 8, and 10, you have doulos. Down here in verse 13, you have diakonos, I think is what it is. Forgive me, Mary, for butchering Greek. But you have a different group here. And if they were all translated slave or they're all translated servant, you would get confused maybe of thinking that the slaves might be the same. They're not. They're different people. Now here's the pronouncement for these servants. Bind him, the man not dressed properly, hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is the turning point of this event? Binding him hand and foot. Well, that, that, that's the reaction. Throwing him out. No, that's all reaction. Oh, the turning point? Being found without clothes. Remember Jesus' turning point in Matthew 8. In all of Israel, I haven't found such great faith. Everybody remember that? And now here's a turning point here. Friend, how come you don't have your wedding garment on? I don't have anything to say. It's freely given, but yet because you didn't have it, things now changed in this situation. So they bound him so he couldn't wiggle and squiggle away. And they cast him into outer darkness. Now you probably get this whole one, two, three, and kind of chucking him out there, okay? But they didn't kill him. They didn't kill him. Like no the, reason like to. Did, like the other ones, they murdered. Yeah, they murdered. Well, they but, but the servants are the one that are doing the binding of this man. 
Okay. And the servants are different from the slaves. Now watch this. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now remember, is weeping and gnashing of teeth a location or an emotion? Everybody keep that in your mind, okay? And it says here, verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. Now there's nothing greater than talking with a Calvinist about this subject. And they try to pull this verse, and this verse has nothing to do with whether certain people are predestined to go to heaven or not. How does verse 14 make sense with the rest of this parable? So you have twofold homework. Number one, research through the plethora of tools that Mary Cooper is going to bless you with today on historical background on a first century Jewish wedding feast. And number two, how does verse 14 make sense in the context and subject matter of verses 1 through 13? Let's pray. God, thank you for our time together. And I pray, God, that we have lots of questions that we would desire for the Holy Spirit to answer in our hearts to bring us to a greater understanding of your word and how you work with people and the importance of wedding garments. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone, so much. Thank you.